you'll hear a lot of times people call uh, Buddhism a contemplative science of the mind. Today's show mentions some spiritual and religious references. If that's not your cup of tea, tune in next Tuesday for a secular discussion of mindfulness and IT management. This is the next level where real network professionals charge into difficult IT management situations, lead from the front, and get it right. Join us as we ask the hard questions that most people are too afraid to ask and figure out how to drive the positive change you want to see. We'll take you from the CLI to CIO. I'm Damien Hoising from Packet Brigade. You can find me on Twitter at Packet Brigade and LinkedIn. And I'm Drew Conry-Murray, and I'm at Drew underscore CM on Twitter. And on today's show, we're going to talk about mindfulness in IT. And depending on who you talk to, mindfulness can mean a lot of things, ranging from a rigorous form of Buddhist meditation and spiritual practice to the latest self-help buzzword. But in fact, evidence shows that mindfulness practice can be a useful way to help reduce stress and improve attention and focus. And that sounds pretty useful in a high-stress and high-stakes career like IT. But what happens when you take mindfulness as a spiritual discipline and break it down into something more utilitarian? Can you really divorce a practice from its spiritual foundation and still get something meaningful? And is it still mindfulness or something else like focused awareness? So on today's show, we're going to talk about this debate and discuss what role, if any, mindfulness and meditation may have in helping you enhance your professional and personal life. Joining us today is Michelle, a.k.a. Mrs. Y, a security architect, engineer, writer, researcher, analyst, and podcaster. Michelle, would you please introduce yourself and tell the audience a bit about your technical and business background? I uh, appreciate you listing all my accomplishments in such detail there. <laughs> I am an architect, uh, sometime principal. I have my own company called Postmodern Security. I also work for a variety of large organizations, which you can see on my LinkedIn page. I write a lot about information security. That's my primary field and work in that area. But I also talk a lot about the business of IT and the personalities in IT. I've, I actually have done workshops for Drew in a previous life uh, based where we talked about conflict resolution and uh, leadership training using some mindfulness techniques. That's right. So, this is definitely in my bailiwick. Absolutely. So let's jump into it. Um, so what do we what do we mean when we actually talk about mindfulness? And, and Michelle, you're actually uh, a practitioner of this, so you can maybe give us some background here. I am, and I hope this doesn't put off some of your listeners, but I'm actually on the, the far end of the practice as a, an actual Buddhist practitioner. And it's funny because I started out with the... I, I was drawn to mindfulness because I heard the same things that everybody else did. This was years ago, though. I went, I was drawn to it because I was plagued with back pain. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was kind of at wit's end and, and trying to deal with it. And I read that meditation was very good in managing pain. And so I started for that reason. And then it, you see the benefits in other ways in other parts of your life. And then you start to get curious about you know, where it comes from, you know, inevitably, because, you know, it's like a typical technologist or an engineer, you go, wait, let me break this down. <laughs> let me go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> so that's what happened. I, I ended up uh, down the rabbit hole and found that it was, it's one component of an entire uh, a body of practices. And I now am a, you know, a, not as much as I'd like a participant in a, in a, Buddhist community, and I've been on, on meditation retreats and read a lot of the texts. So <laughs> I'm on that that opposite end of not. I've I started out secular with a secular practice and then moved into something more uh, observant. Okay, so but mindfulness has roots in Buddhism and it is a meditation practice. It has roots in Buddhism and in Hinduism, actually, and Jainism. Uh, it's, so I would call it a southern, it, it has roots in, in uh, southern Asia. But you'll actually see meditation referenced in uh, Judaism and Christianity and Islam. I mean, it, it's it's used in a lot of uh, religious, as, as a component in a lot of religious practices. Mm-hmm. So as a component in in the Buddhist sense, what what is the goal of mindfulness meditation other than, you know, relieving back pain or reducing stress? What what is it as a spiritual practice? And to be honest, it it's it is actually about 
relieving pain ultimately, right? I, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with the Four Noble Truths and all of that, but it's about um, suffering or dissatisfaction, its cause, its end, and then the path. And, and meditation is part of the Eightfold Path. It's part of, um, it's, there's a threefold knowledge called um, of sila, samadhi, and panya, or morality, uh, concentration, and wisdom, and it's part of the concentration component. And ultimately, that is the goal, right? It's whether, you know, physical pain is a small part of what they see as kind of, you know, a misunderstanding of reality and I think that's, so it is, ultimately it's all about stress and suffering and dissatisfaction. It just, you start to, when you, when you start on a small, with a small um, component of it, you start to see other aspects of Mm -hmm. that pain, which aren't so physical maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know, is that, so mindfulness in the sense, uh, it's such a um, loaded term now, but in originally what the term, it, it, it comes from uh, a, ter- a word called sati, a Pali term, at least in Buddhism. And the main people who brought it over, just so you know, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, um, Sharon Salzberg and others, they went to Southern Asia and uh, studied Buddhism. And those are the main people who, who brought it back and they secularized it. So you can pretty much say that it's a, that the mindfulness we know today is is more um, Buddhist based. You'll have some that are more that are Hindu, such as uh, Adyashanti, which is more of an Advaita Vedanta practice. But you can pretty much say that it's it's more heavily influenced by Buddhism. And so, mindfulness and AKA awareness, which is pretty much the same term, is used as a method to gain ultimate insight. And um, that's, in, in its most uh, simple term, it's a clear seeing, it's clearing your mind so that you can get to the next level of insight. Is that helpful? Yeah, I think that's a really succinct and appealing way to, to define it. I've never been accused of being succinct. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimate insight. That's what we need. All right. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned that mindfulness and awareness is synonymous. I was curious if there was some distinction in that it might be easier to talk about awareness in its utilitarian context to disambiguate, differentiate from mindfulness. But it sounds like you think they're pretty close in, in meaning. Oh, they are. The term, the term, so the terminology that you'll hear me use a lot is, is from the, it's the ancient Pali, which is very close to Sanskrit. And when you're talking about a lot of this, you'll hear Dhamma or Dharma. Dhamma is the Pali, Dharma is the Sanskrit. And they're very contextual languages. So that means that there are nuances to the terms like sati, which is translated as mindfulness and awareness, that there are nuances that can mean slightly different things. I'm not a, I'm not fully conversant in Pali. (laughs) I have friends who are, but um, the one thing you need to know, for example, for example, you'll talk about something called Vedana in, in Pali, which means it's translated into English as feelings, but it doesn't mean emotions. It means feeling tone of good, bad, and indifferent, <laughs> um, or pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So it, it's, if I seem a little fuzzy on what some of this terminology means, it's because it's contextual. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we were going for that sort of contextual distinction because we don't want to, you know, insult folks who might be taking a very serious uh, approach to mindfulness meditation as a spiritual practice versus people who might just be curious about mindfulness and uh, mindfulness meditation and, and maybe how it can be a little bit more utilitarian for them. Yeah, I'm interested to see if there's a relationship to some other utilitarian qualities such as alertness. So is mindfulness relate to alert, alertness and ardency? It, it is. Actually, that's that's a really great point. In fact, you guys are going to get sick of hearing me talk about this, but in, in some of the texts, it does talk about alertness. In fact, there's a hindrance called uh, 
one of the hindrances is sloth and torpor. <laughs> <laughs> Which I get every day after lunch. Yeah, it's, it's sloth and torpor is considered a, um, a hindrance to, you know, obtaining uh, insight and, and uh, nirvana or nibbana, however you choose to put it. You'll hear some people, and I, because I, I don't want to turn people off, it's just that's where the roots of this comes from. But you'll hear a lot of times people call uh, Buddhism a contemplative science of the mind more than religion. And I think that's fair in our discussion today. It, I think it will be most helpful for, for listeners to think of it that way, and then you won't get caught in the religious part of it so much and, and maybe be mentally stuck there. It, you can cultivate an alertness. I think the most important thing to, to know about mindfulness and its component in as a tool to gain insight and to gain uh, freedom and uh, freedom from suffering and, and uh, illusion is that it, they're all so interrelated. It's, par it's also part of a moral path. Uh, in, in the Ovada Padamoka, which is part of sila that, that, they get, that the Buddhist monks must observe, um, the rules of the order, is they, you'll hear a, a common quote, which is that you should refrain from evil, cultivate the good, and purify the mind, as if it's one thing. Mm -hmm. And when you clean out your mind of all the detritus, it allows you to contemplate and make better choices, more moral choices. And when you make better moral choices, it keeps you clean of shame and regret so that you can have a better practice and see more clearly and become more aware, right? So they, they, you see how they're interrelated. And when you describe morality, I wonder if it could be more related to normative goods than the typical diabolistic moral goods that that some of the monotheistic traditions talk about. That's a great, great point, and it's very accurate. I remember having a conversation with a very eminent monk, and I love these guys because they will take a question from anyone, right? Bhante Gunaratana, who is one of the most, he set up the first Vihara or temple in the U.S., written tons of books, very, very distinguished, and I said, you know, I read this thing <laughs> and it said that I shouldn't spend any time with fools, but then I'm supposed to be compassionate at the same time. Good observation. What's that about? <laughs> and he said, and he basically said, it's practical. He said, you know what? This is not about some lofty philosophy or, you know, nobody, you're supposed to question everything in, in, in the practice. And he said, you're doing the right thing. But yes, it's about practicality. You need to, you know, you're going to be thrown into situations with people. You need to be as compassionate and understanding as possible because that's how the world is going to get, is going to work the best, right? If everybody tries to get along, then it's just, things are just going to go smoother. You don't have to like the person. You know, you should wish good thoughts for them, but it's, that's just the way it is. And yes, don't, choose, if you can avoid it, try not to be around people who might make you do bad things. You mentioned Bhante. He also talks about some misconceptions. So we've previously described what mindfulness is. Can we talk about what mindfulness is not, Michelle? So just to clarify, I noticed people think that Bhante is a first name. It's actually uh, means, it, it's uh, uh, saying, it's similar to saying Mr. <laughs> it's, uh -huh. Bhante is how you address a, a monk. So uh, it's Bhante Gunaratana or Bhante G, because Gunaratana is a mouthful for most people. Gunaratana. Uh, Gunaratana. Yeah. Gunaratana. Okay, I got it now. <laughs> it's very funny. Uh, so he's written a very famous book called Mindfulness in Plain English, which if even if you don't want to be a Buddhist, I recommend it. It's a great kind of uh, very simplified and accessible version of uh, mindfulness and, and how to practice. It's great. So... I pulled it out this uh, earlier today, and I was looking at, uh, and I found this section on misconceptions, and they're great. So he talks about it not being just a relaxation technique. Not that that's a bad thing. It's great to become more relaxed, but that it's only that's a very fir that's a first step. There are lots of things you can do to relax. It's not a trance. A lot of people that I talk to will say, "Oh, I could never meditate because I'm thinking so much." It's not about stopping thinking. You are still going to think. It's about being aware of the thoughts and not cultivating something that's called papancha, which papancha means it's a, 
I think it comes from a term from a sutta about a sticky ball where you notice how your thoughts can become very sticky and then, you know, you'll have one thought, oh, that person looked at me funny. They must hate me. Oh, I wonder if they're, if they're, they're a mean person. And, you know, you just start creating a story. That's kind of snowball. Right. And so it's about, uh, it's, so it's not, meditation is not about necessarily saying, I don't think, but it's, you don't cultivate that kind of sticky ball of thoughts that, that fall, fold in on themselves and be, can become quite destructive to our minds. It's not about becoming a psychic. Some people, <laughs> some people believe that it's not about that. I know it's I actually science. you'll hear that from very famous, uh, very eminent monks. They do say that they can be, have psychic powers, but that takes a really long time and multiple rebirths. It's not dangerous. Sometimes you'll hear stories about that. Usually it's because the person may have other things going on. But in 99.9% of the cases, I have not seen it become dangerous. It's not for regular people. It's only for monastics. That's not true. I see lots of people who meditate. It's it's a great practice. Um, it's running away from reality. Not accurate at all. I think the hardest, most brave thing you can do is sit alone with yourself, in yourself, sure. and let things happen. That is, we have a culture of diversion of uh, dissociation, this need to be distracted a lot. And I think, I don't think it helps us personally or professionally. Sure. Just tell someone to sit down and not look at their cell phone for five minutes and watch what yeah. happens to them. Good luck with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it, that it's a great way to get high. Okay. I'm not going to say that I haven't had some really amazing, very powerful and uh, joyous moments in, in meditation. I don't think you can go in expecting that because nine times out of 10, I haven't had those experiences. And it can even be kind of painful because you're just, your mind is so all over the place that it, it's taking a long time to quiet. Uh, but it, it, the end result is sort of like exercise or, or uh, cod liver oil. You do feel better afterwards. It's selfish. I don't think it's selfish at all. Um, when you clean house, which I think that's what a mindfulness practice is, you're, you're cleaning a lot of that detritus out. When you do that, you're helping the world. I, I wish a few more people were meditating and cleaning, keeping that that mental space clean, that in, their internal lives clean, because it would just mean you're having better conversations, you're having better relationships when, you know, two people come to the table and they're not in the middle of threat response, uh, a threat response cycle or, or you know, dealing with their own agony or, or uh, negative stuff. Um, you're not necessarily thinking about philosophy or other lofty things. You can, it's generally not the first stage of meditation. And the final one is that you think you meditate for a couple of weeks and that all your problems are going to magically go away. Or even if the, that you meditate for 10 years and you think problems magically go away. That's not really <laughs> – I've talked to monks and uh, one – I remember one telling me – I won't mention his name, but he said to me, you know, you think – people think monasteries are easy. <laughs> there are no distractions there. Right. So <laughs> the mind – is an interesting little, the mind, somebody once said, uh, the mind is an excellent tool, but it's not your friend. And when it's not being used, when it's not doing something uh, practical, it, it's going to look for a problem. Right. Well, that's a, a really interesting list of, of misconceptions. And, and thank you for clearing that up. And I hope that's useful to listeners. It's time for Sanity Check, a segment where we listen to real engineers' questions like, why the heck does my manager do this thing that drives me nuts? Names have been changed to protect the innocent. So we, we got a comment from a listener who wanted to submit this scenario, uh, and this person writes, Myself and a few fellow co-workers are contracted out from our contracting company to a much larger company that keeps many contractors on staff. My company ended up losing the bid for lower-level Anok L2, and they were offshored but kept one employee stateside. Since this change, our, our new offshore at L2's turnover at least every three months, and their manager team lead who was kept stateside created a culture of accountability, and his knowledge of networking in and of itself is not really strong enough to teach the environment to new employees. 
I've sat down with him and went through the environment changes and to navigate GUIs, and he still doesn't retain any information. So the, the first question that comes from this scenario, how do you deal with working with a competing company from a contracting standpoint? What should and should I not do? As if they are better at their job, it makes my life easier, but I'll train these people up and they leave once they acquire decent knowledge. Note, my manager from a contracting company does not want us to train them. So, uh. I've, I've actually been in this situation. The practicality is that these are human beings that you have to work with. You can't not train them. In fact, somebody said to me once that the way I talk to people is if I'm training them. Uh, when I explain something, I am prepped already to train them because I'm usually speaking about something that's very complex. So I'm prepared already to explain to them how it works. And it's fun for me, so I don't, I don't mind doing it. But, I mean, I can see the manager's point that, you know, that, that they should have to feel the pain for hiring that contract organization. I mean, I've been through this where you have three to four different contracting companies working on a site. And you go to your manager and you say, hey, these guys clearly are not trained to do what they've been hired to do. And so I sort of do two things. I try to keep my life easier by giving them enough information so that they can repeat it the next time I ask them. And then on the other hand, I document it, you know, so it, it works its way up the chain saying on this occasion, I had to do this and this and this. I'm concerned that these individuals do not have the skill set to complete this task. Um, and then your your the responsibility of your manager, and that's you know, you can try managing up, but in my experience, that manager has to let his person, you know, his, uh, the person he reports to know, or you have to engage the vendor management office, but that's generally out, you know, above your pay grade, right? And um, that's really, it's a difficult situation, but increasingly that is the reality for most organizations, right? With increased amount of outsourcing, I mean, I, I, there is no easy answer here. I think that separation of duties definitely helps a lot if you define the scope. So, you know, it sounds like in this situation, there's, there's a fair amount of overlap. But if you can clearly define what each party is responsible for, and you can containerize the transfer of knowledge within those scopes, then I, I think the conflict goes away. I think it's very important to maintain your personal integrity first and foremost. And if it sounds like your boss is asking you to do something that you think would violate your personal integrity. I think you need to speak up right away and and say, you know, hey, I have to think about this or I'm not, you know, I'm not very comfortable with this because uh, if you go and then and then are in, completely insubordinate and go against, absolutely against what they say, well, then they can come back and, you know, fire you or whatever. But then you're being you're you're in a position of not being an integrity uh, at that point. So I think if it, if it makes you uncomfortable, the, your, the listeners is right to first, you know, think carefully about it and, and see counsel about it and not just um, blindly go. I really like what Michelle said about documentation. So documentation is a great way to transfer knowledge. I think it's it's basic due diligence for any kind of job. So if you had a document for how to do something that you use with your job, sharing that document isn't really necessarily actively training. So that may be another way to get around it. Yeah. And to be honest with you, <clears throat> one of the biggest problems I see in the field is, especially when you're dealing with offshore, you have to remember that, uh, you know, it, I see that he talks about people not retaining information. You have to understand that even if they appear, even if an, with an out, uh, an offshoring company that they appear to speak English, that there's a subtext to every language that may not get communicated. For example, if when I I used to I found out when I was working with um, an Indian company that when I said I would do the following now in in English in in the U.S. that means well I'm recommending that if I were you I would do this with the Indian staff they thought that meant that I was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Lost in yeah. translation. So, yeah. Um, it, 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 so you have to remember that that's sometimes that you think you're being clear and certain parts of Southern Asia, it's very important to them not to create conflict. They may not really understand you, but they're, they're, it's part of their culture to not say so. And... Uh, and to not create conflict. So you having written documentation, you having sessions where you say, okay, let's go through this. And now I'm going to let you do it and I'm just going to watch. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So the sort of see one, do one, teach one approach, multimodal input, 
as a good idea too, like you said. So describing it verbally, just showing it visually with some kind of screenshot or in a document. If ultimately, if this person is with a contract company, I've been in that scenario too, where you've done everything, right? You've done everything you can to get them to understand. And even with you've written it down, you've been on the uh, on a WebEx with them and whatever, and it's still not working. Unfortunately, then the time comes to go to your manager or go to the vendor management office, or you always have someone who is managing the contractors, and you have to tell them, you have to document it and say, here are the occasions where this person was unable to complete tasks. I don't think this person has the skill set to meet the contract. This is my recommendation. I think he probably needs to be replaced. I mean, it's a last resort. I have made that, because you're not doing somebody any favors, you're not doing your organization. It's you have a fiduciary responsibility to your organization, you know, a moral obligation, and you have you're not helping that person grow if they're so out of their element that they can't meet the requirements. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I also, was curious about you know if it's clear that it's an inability for them to learn, then then clearly that you need you need to document that, but also. If it's simply, you know, your first experience with off, offshoring, like it sounds like there's been a lot of changes going on with the organization they're working with. If it's so early on in a relationship, then do you think, Michelle, it would be risky to also take some accountability for that and phrasing it in so far as we're having difficulty working together, we may be having some cultural communication issues. This is what I've done, and th- these are the results we're getting back, are meeting our needs. Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's fair. If I saw a recent, I can't remember where I saw it, but it talked about, I saw this um, infograph about how the directness of various cultures around the world, right? And I tend to be super, super direct. And I do best with the Dutch and <laughs> Germans, you know, the, that part of the world. Their, their cultures are very direct. And you'll see the British are not as direct and Southern Asia is not as direct. And you have to go in, you have to, you know, it's not a negative. It's just there are communication styles and cultural considerations that influence how people interact. And if you want to offshore, that is a really important consideration. You have to understand that and you have to, you know, generally in my experience with offshoring partners, because they are your partner, right? You still have to have the conversation. I see that we don't always seem to be communicating well. What is it that I'm, you know, even though directness offends people, if you do it in a right way, if you do it in a very eye-centered language and not critical, because if you're too critical, it, it's just going to offend. Right, they're going to clam up. They're going to. It's yeah. going to actually offend them culturally. So, you know, some some depending on the part of the world, or you're right, most people will be offended by criticism. So, you know, the it's about asking a question. Hey, I see that this isn't always going smoothly. I think we need to sit down and talk about how what you need from us and what we can what I and we'll talk about what I, what we need from you and how we can make this a better working relationship. And normally in a in an offshore uh relationship, you're having that conversation, it's iterative. It's happening all the time. If you're not doing that, you've got a problem. Being a technologist, I hate to just throw tools at problems, but I wonder if it is a repetitive scenario. So if they're training them in a task that's highly repetitive, perhaps abstracting the task into a tool or a script could be a solution. So say, you know, if you have a certain level of influence in the organization can say, hey, if we outsource the developing of this script for, you know, this much money, you know, then we can just have them click a button and, and you know, <laughs> that might get around training them. Yeah, it, it actually that's accurate because what I see is that offshoring IT has is like the new it's the new IT sweatshop. It's not they're thinking the problem isn't whether or not to off offshore because you're not really solving the problem. You're just use you, you're just finding a sweatshop, right? Um the you're not the problem is how do we become more efficient? How do IT organizations become more efficient and add more value to the business? The answer is not offshoring. That can be a temporary answer. The real answer is we need to find out how to automate and create more opportunities for self-service. The best you know, win-win scenarios I've ever heard about are cases where the company first took the time to optimize the process and make it as most efficient as possible, automate the parts they could, then they, then they outsourced. But they 
They worked a lot on optimizing the process first. Where are those companies? I'm going to go work there. Most of them are uh, startups, uh, collaboration, global collaboration teams. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. See. Internet-based companies. Um, I want to bring it back to a little bit slightly more practical direction um, and just mention as, as I was researching this show uh, and thinking about our audience who may be less spiritually focused and a bit more utilitarian focused, you know, how do we know that this mindfulness stuff actually works, you know, what, not as a spiritual practice, but as, you know, some way to provide me some benefit that I can see. And I just happened to come across uh, a story in the New York Times about a study done at Carnegie Mellon where they actually tried to measure some benefits. So they took two groups of people. They had one group practice formal mindfulness meditation for a three-day period, and the second group just focused on relaxation during the same period. And then the researchers took blood tests and conducted blood scans of both groups. And then the article says, there was more activity or communication among the portions of the brains that process stress-related reactions and other areas related to focus and calm. And four months later, those who had practiced mindfulness showed much lower levels in their blood of a marker of unhealthy inflammation than the relaxation group, even though few were still meditating. So the upshot there is that folks who actually did the mindfulness meditation practice, there were biological changes in their body related to their ability to cope with stress. So I thought that was pretty interesting and, and just a point to throw out as, as we're talking about what can sometimes seem a, a lofty and esoteric subject that, yes, folks are trying to measure are there benefits here, and, and that's something we're going to discuss as we move on. Yeah, and that's one of just a few studies about uh, meditation. They, they love to throw monks in a uh, brain scan equipment and watch their prefrontal cortex glow. Right, and, right, right. Because right. uh, that's what it does. What's happening is your prefrontal cortex, especially if you're doing meta meditation, which is loving kindness, and you're, it's a practice where you concentrate on others where you think about, well, if you start with yourself and you start to think about, uh, you, you wish good thoughts for yourself and then you work your way out to people you love, um, people you hate and people who you don't even know. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's a, there's a monk called Matthew Richard, uh, from France. He's known as the happiest man on earth. He's a Tibetan monk. I think he started as a physicist. A lot of monks actually have his, apparently his brain really has it just there's a lot of activity they studied him for a long time and and his prefrontal cortex really lights up when he when he meditates they've done this commonly and it it's if you but, but i think the caveat here is the people that they study either have gone through a training period or they've uh they they've they're buddhist monks who obviously have trained for a long time. Right. And there are formalized approaches to doing this in a secular or a sacred fashion. One of the most famous um, and highly recommended systems is called mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction or MBSR. Uh, it was created, the system was created by a, a gentleman known as John Kabat-Zinn. And it started, I believe, it's, I think they used the system in Stanford, but I think it started at um, I, I forget the university in in the north in a, a northeastern university, and he, it, it's taught in it's used in hospitals, it's used for PTSD victims, crime victims, uh, it's used all over the country and the world as one of the best uh, structures for, you know, teaching mindfulness uh, a mindfulness practice. I've gone through it myself. I find I found it highly useful. I'm interested to bring us back to the question of how it works. So we've talked about examples that show evidence that mindfulness meditation has these benefits and physiological manifestations. Do we know anything about how it works or in terms of its mechanism, be it mental or physiological? I can tell you from personal experience and from conversations with meditation groups and other practitioners that I know. What I've seen is that it slows you down. I think we, our culture, especially now, is very reactive and very fast. And it's, you know, you'll read a lot about uh, that people are, seem to be more in threat response mode in, an, in a constant fashion going through your life. I mean, you, you wake up in the morning, you're already rushing to get the kids to school, to get to, get to work, you're, you have to, you know, sit in traffic. You may have had a rough time in traffic. Maybe somebody tried to hit your car. Um, then you get to work at the last minute for a meeting, and then you're stressed about what's going on in the meeting. Maybe you're you're oversubscribed. 
you know, so it's about slowing that down, getting yourself out of that threat response mode, bringing your, your cortisol level down because stress hormones stay in the body a long time, typically two hours. But if you are always under stress, then your, your, your cortisol levels never really go down apparently. And you'll see this in people. They're just, they're tired. They use caffeine to deal with their tired feelings because stress makes you tired. It also, I can tell you not just the slowing down, but you said something to me about, does it, does it bring about alertness? Does it help with alertness? And it does because, you know, if you're tired all the time because of stress hormones, it, typically what happens in threat response is that your blood, the blood is drained from your neocortex, right? So your higher thinking is sort of shut off. So you're not really thinking well, plus you're tired, which causes you to not think as clearly. So it, it's what's going to happen is what I've seen is that you're thinking a little better, you're slower, you're more conscious of what you're doing. Your relationships are not also sort of uh, reactive anymore. You're not as likely to see attribute negative uh, negative motivations to people when you have uh, an inappropriate interaction with someone. So I think it improves relationships. That's what I've found in myself. I mean, I notice when I'm not meditating that I'm not as I'm not as as aware. I mean, I think that's where when you you said something about how can we use awareness in a contextual fashion, I think that's the perfect example. You're not as aware. And I see that I make better decisions when I when I'm consistently meditating. Can we apply mindfulness practices to being better at IT or information security, just the, the, the day job? I mean, I don't want to support people hijacking a practice just as yet another, you know, uh, <laughs> oh, I need the iPhone 6 because that will make my job better. It, it's not in that sense. It's, it's, I think if you're willing to make a commitment to being a human being, <laughs> Uh, to, I think, first of all, it's a commitment to taking care of yourself. Mindfulness clearly does that. It, it's saying, you know, just like exercise or eating better. What I see, especially in information security, is that people, uh, you get caught up in a lifestyle of reactivity, of negativity. It has a, a it utilizes a taxonomy of violence and war, and it's very easy to get caught up in that and be constantly in live in threat response, mm -hmm. um, waiting for something to happen. It, it, you know, it's like cops, right? And I see that that is for you to sit back and say, no, I'm going to commit, I'm going to make a commitment to myself and to others around me to be more aware, to be more um, mindful in how I relate to them and how I relate to myself. Because it is really ultimately mindfulness is a choice about the way you relate to the world, which includes yourself, others, and rea the reality around you. We talk about mindfulness as a way to I'm thinking about, and if anybody, any of our listeners are martial artists or combat artists, my coach is always telling me, relax, relax, right? And so physiologically, when, you re when you're physically relaxed, your speed improves. So I wonder if there's an analog from the mental aspect, and when you're dealing with information security and you're dealing in information combat and mental combat, that by be having practiced mindfulness, your mind is more relaxed and therefore can respond faster. Fast is slow, slow is smooth. And ultimately, that's what it is. I, I, um, I do aerial trapeze work. And I, I remember I used to always want to, you know, you're trying to rush through because they're hard. Some of the tricks are scary and they're a little hard. And so you're, you, you want to get to the end of the trick so that you can say, okay, I did it. And in reality, that's, it's counterintuitive, but that's the worst thing you can do. It's actually very dangerous. And I'm sure you'll, it's the same with martial arts. What you want to do is be as thoughtful and as aware and as present in the movement as possible so that you're, you're not making mistakes and so that you're, you're conscious, right, and engaged with it. And I think that's life in general. <laughs> um, I think you're just more effective when you're aware and engaged. Multitasking is a myth. It doesn't work. And basic mindfulness is telling you not to do that. So... Um, are, are there ways that our workplaces uh, or organizations can try to foster or promote 
mindfulness. And Damien, you had an example that you pulled out from uh, some research. This is kind of an extreme example, right? I've read that in medieval times, cathedrals incorporated walking labyrinths as a tool for guided contemplation of higher power. And I don't think, unless you're Apple or some really capital-rich organization, you can build a labyrinth of the coffee pot. But uh, <laughs> you know, some people uh, have experimented with digital labyrinths or projected labyrinths or, or things of that nature. But yeah, I was just curious if you know, there's some physical constructs we can do. Are there any operational constructs we can do to foster mindfulness? Well, first, I'd like to say that the idea that meditation is always sitting is a misnomer. It's n- it's it's a misunderstanding of the practice. There are actually uh, four meditation postures. Um, indicated in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. A lot of people tend to like lying down, but (laughs) that was a joke. Um, There's something known as walking meditation, which a labyrinth, um, you'll see a lot of overlap between the Christian community and the Buddhist community that you can do a simple back and forth walking meditation, or you could in fact walk a labyrinth. And there are lots of ways to accomplish that. You could use walking meditation to go from one part of a building to another or one part of a campus to another, you can, there's certainly, uh, in Zen, you'll have the tea ceremony is a mindfulness practice. There are other ways you could incorporate that. If you go on meditation retreats, there's mindful eating, for example, that, because that's a requirement, you, you don't speak on most meditation retreats and you're required to then be mindful in all your activities, which includes eating. Now, uh, those are very, you know, specific, but you could also, uh, I've seen a lot of workplaces, uh, find a well-trained meditation practitioner who can lead meditation groups at offices during a lunch hour, I've seen um, some organizations are trying to better control email in order to ensure that there's more of a distraction-free workplace and encourage more mindfulness, but on more of a, I guess that's kind of a a more abstract level or maybe less abstract and more practical. So there are ways you can do that. It's all whether or not your, your office, your workplace is committed to it, to a sort of health and wellness as a concept in the business or whether you're committed as a team and you want to do something for it. it I think this the difficult part doing it at a corporate level is they're worried about making it too religious because that comes up in schools sometimes that, okay, sure. how do we keep it secular enough to not offend those who are very observant in their own particular faiths? I wonder if it'd be too much of a stretch to ha- talk about running at lunch. So, you know, one time I worked in the lab and we just go for a run at lunch. And if you're running fast enough, you're out of breath, you don't talk so much. So would that be a valid form of walking meditation? No, not necess- not really. I mean, I, I think you can achieve that runner's high. I think you can achieve a state of relaxation. But uh, walking meditation and or walking a labyrinth is a very kind of specific activity. There's They actually break it down very intentionally about the way that your foot specifically hits the ground and how your breath coordinates with the way your foot hits the ground. It can get very Byzantine in the way that you do it. It's not one of my favorite practices, uh, but it is a very useful and challenging practice. I, I used to know a guy um, who had been a monk at one time, and he actually walked to work using walking meditation. And it took him a while but <laughs> on a daily basis, but it, it, he was a very grounded person. So I think that going back then, it may be more possible to foster mindfulness through the communication mechanisms a company uses. So something that's maybe asynchronous like Slack versus bombarding you with alerts and text messages and stuff, as long as you, you have appropriate use of technology. I think that's a great point. I think as mindfulness as maybe a concept. And again, you know, the whole idea is that it's supposed to start a conversation and it's not supposed to be the end of the conversation, right? The goal is to achieve insight. You know, the point to mindfulness, I remember um, a nun I knew, she said, you know, you can do anything mindfully. You can shoot a gun mindfully. You can drink a cup of tea mindfully. That in itself isn't the point, right? It's supposed to be becoming, uh, you're supposed to achieve some freedom and some understanding and some insight from it. Now, whether you do that as a Buddhist or you do it as a Christian, as a Muslim, or you just do it as an atheist. The point is that you're trying to have a better understanding. And, you know, if that means, if that's as simple as maybe 
your CIO saying, you know what, I see that my staff feels overwhelmed, overloaded, and very oversubscribed, and now the morale is low. Do we really need to have people respond to email 24-7? Do we need to have people think that they need a response to every email in five minutes? Maybe, so mindfulness isn't just the sitting, the mindfulness also comes in the understanding, in the awareness of, do I have to do it like that? Does that benefit me? Because that is the question that you're supposed to be asking. How does this benefit me? How does this action benefit me or another? Is this going to cause harm to myself or another? That should be the question you ask. That's that's really the mindfulness too. I'm interested to talk a little bit about a forward-looking question. And and we talked a little bit about some ways how technology can decrease mindfulness by distracting. But there, I encountered a few ideas that seemed to indicate that technology could promote mindfulness. In particular, uh, Linda Stone has coined a term called conscious computing in the context of using computing as a prosthetic for engaging in, with our full potential. So whether it be augmented reality or you know uh, uploading our consciousness to the to the internet as some some possible things I'm thinking about. Do, can you think of any ways in which technology could promote? Oh, we're not going to have that singularity well, talk. Well, we don't we? we don't have to go to the. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, some of those anecdotes are singularity esque. Yeah, okay. don't make me hang up now. Um, those AI guys. I, you know what? To me, I approach technology as a tool. It's a hammer. It's a really cool hammer. Now I can take that hammer and I can hit you over the head with it, or I can build a house for Habitat for the Humanity. Right. It's just a tool. You know, we can get into concepts of extended mind and all of that. But so you can use it. But in reality, you can use it in a good way or a bad way. And I think that's where the mindfulness with as it relates to technology. I mean, for example, I have an app on my phone called Budify, right? And it has some guided meditations and it it easily allows me, so I don't have to go through a lot of things to set an alarm on my phone. It allows me to set a length of time for a meditation session. It has a nice little bell at the beginning and the bell at the end. It just makes it easier for me. So it's a great little app. That's a that's a mindfully good use of technology, right? Yes, that makes sense. So that's that's how I see it. I don't see that, that technology is going to help me in and of itself, there's some unique quality to, to technology that's going to help me achieve um, some heightened state, uh, you know, ultimately, that is beneficial to humanity or myself in the long run. There's no shortcuts. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's a leadership opportunity. And some of the examples you, you described about the anecdote about the CIO dealing with burnout is that whether you're a lead engineer or leading a group or a manager, taking it's a good leadership opportunity to promote the use of technology in a way that promotes mindfulness. Yeah, I think the a good example is, for example, the way people relate via email, where I see technology become destructive. You know, somebody, email is not a way to build and create relationship. It's a way to communicate if you have an established relationship or if you've, you know, it's one element of, of a way to communicate, right? You have chat, you have phone, you have um you have email and it, it becomes increasingly more difficult as you have people all over the country, right? We're, none of us are in, this, in the same room together. None of us are even in the same part of the country together. What I see, how I see people become destructive is through email, you know, and it's death by email, right? It, it's a whole mm-hmm. conversation of 10 emails, which email has, according to Dan Goleman, email has a negativity bias, the brain already has somewhat of a negativity bias. You know, that's what that's what a lot of people po- in popular neuros- neuroscience assert, is that the brain has a negativity bias. There's some question about that. But email definitely does. How many of us read an email and go, that jerk. Can you see the way he said that? And you'll show it to somebody else and they'll go, well, what do you mean? It just looks like he's asking for that thing that you or said you would give it to him. No, you don't understand. It's that, see where he put that comma? My God, how dare he use that comma that way? You know, or he capitalized that word. Oh, my God. You know, it's, we all go there, right? So um, very destructive thing. And that's where you want to be mindful of, hey, is this helping or hurting build relationship? And because at work, 
the most important relation, some of the most important relationships you'll have in life. I mean, you're there, you can be there present eight hours a day. Right. Yeah. You spend a lot of time. If you're driving and you're in traffic for two hours a day and you may see your coworkers more than you see your kids. Yeah. That makes great sense. And that's an example, self-awareness, right? In the email example is not just being awareness of what's going on around you, but what's going on in your own mind. Like, um, okay, am I having a negativity bias? Maybe I should get off email and go down the hall and talk to him in person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have mindfulness uh, use. And remember how I said you could use mindfulness in a lot of ways. I mean, conflict resolution techniques from people like Joe Weston and from, uh, you know, the non uh, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, those techniques, most conflict resolution techniques are mindfulness of relating, mindfulness of relationship. When you use XYZ communication with someone, that's you recognizing, hey, I got to slow this down. I got to take this down a notch because I'm not being heard or I need to make sure that I'm heard, but I'm not offending or harming the other person. How do I do that? Okay, I'm going to use XYZ communication here. When you did this, I experienced this. Could you do this instead? Um, that might be a good place to wrap it up because we are running up against the top of the hour and I want to be mindful of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were so funny. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on The Next Level. I'm Damien Hoising. You can contact me at damien at packetbrigade.com. I blog on Packet Pushers. And I'm Drew Connery Murray. You can find me on packetpushers.net and I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. Uh, Michelle, if folks want to get in touch with you or follow you on social media, where can they go? And do you have a, a, your blog or website you'd like to plug? Please, please, please read my blog. It's postmodernsecurity.com. I have links to all my writing there, my professional and my personal writing. You can also follow me on Twitter at Mrs. Y is Y. If you just hop over to my blog, I know that's an odd name. You'll be able to find my Twitter link. You can some, I post infrequently to Google+. I'm on LinkedIn. If you have some crazy question about any of what I talked about, you're welcome to email me as well. So uh, it's chaburka at postmodernsecurity.com. All of this, though, is my blog is the main point, the main hub where you can find everything about me. All right. And we'll have a link to that blog in our show notes. Uh, And we'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can leave comments on the blog post that accompanies this podcast on packetpushers.net or drop us a line at nextlevel at packetbrigade.com. And thanks for listening.